You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 26 through 32. If you're using one of those Bibles under the chair, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those. That'll be on page 997. I do want to encourage if you use the Version app, we have a lot of Scripture in there, a lot of additional scripture that we're not going to be putting on the screen in here. So that's a good place to turn, and, and then um, you can follow along that way. Again, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 32. God's Word says this, For this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence... That only, excuse me, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Would you pray with me? Lord, we have a challenging truth before us that you have spoken to us. And you have put it here in your word for a reason. You have put it in our uh, journey through this book for a reason. So God, I ask that you would equip us to see it. And that you would open our eyes to understand and and open our ears to hear what you would have for us. Lord, help us to understand how this is to transform our lives and what it is that we are to do with this. That we would see this as profitable in the ways that you would have it to be profitable. So God, we ask that you would give us what we don't have and, and what we can't have on our own. That you would supply what we need this morning to hear from you and to live fully for you. And God, please help me to preach this difficult and challenging text. It's in Jesus' name, amen. A couple things, really, before we get started. First, if you're a guest here, I do want you to know that we have a practice of just going through books of the Bible. So we didn't just pick this text this morning to preach. This is actually what follows where we left off last week. And next week, we'll be at the next part of this. And so by going through books of the Bible, we just naturally get to difficult places at times. Second, the next time Pastor Mike stands up here and says, Pastor Brian always gives me the hard text to preach, would you just remind him of this week? That would be uh, helpful for me. It is true, though, if he were here and not preaching at Calvary and Ogden, maybe he would be preaching this one. I don't know. There is an issue here, though, that I'd like to address before we move any further into the text, and it's a common misconception about the text that I just read, that we just read together, and I'd like to get this straightened out right away. See, the the misconception is that many people believe that 
if you engage in certain behaviors long enough, you just keep doing them, then eventually God's going to say, that's it. Too much. You've hit the limit. I'm just handing you over. I'm delivering you over. That's what a lot of people believe that this text is saying. The challenge is, I don't think we have a gospel that says there's a limit that you've crossed and there's now no salvation. The other reason I don't hold to this view is if you would look with me to verse 26, where we started. It opens with, for this reason, God delivered them over. And what's that? Well, if we back up into verses 24 and 25, we see that it says, therefore, God delivered them over into the desires of their heart. And then we keep reading and we get to 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator. So when they were delivered over to follow the passions of their heart, and they're given over into their own free will and their own free choices, they, according to this text, engaged in sexual impurity, and they were evil, greedy, murderous, quarrelsome, deceitful. They were malicious. They were gossips, slanderers, God-haters, they were arrogant, they were proud, they were boastful, they were inventors of evil, they were disobedient to their parents, senseless, they became untrustworthy, they were unloving, and they're unmerciful. That's what happened when they were given over to follow the desires of their heart. We might think twice about teaching our kids to follow their hearts. But God did not deliver these people over because they did these things. They did these things because God delivered them over to the reality of sin. These things are the the product of sin. They're the black fruit of sin. And by way of last week, by way of review, when did all this start? There's a clue. If you go back up to verse 25, it says they worshipped what was created instead of their creator. That should tip you off. When did this start? Started in Genesis 3, back in the garden. That's when this happened. That's when God gave humanity over to sin, to punishment, to wrath. But luckily, Genesis 3.15 says that there is a Savior coming from the seed of the woman. He's going to crush the head of the snake. It's the first gospel message to us immediately at the point when man was given over. And then the rest of the Bible is the story of that salvation and how it is that we can be saved. So now let's, let's look at this with that in view. Twice it says in the passage that we read that God delivered them over. And then in the previous passage, which we also just read, it says it again. Romans 1.26 says, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Romans 1.28 says, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they would do what is not right. Romans 1.24, going back up, says, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Who is them? Who, who are we talking about here? Who is them? Who was given over? 
We go back up because it's referring to something. We go back up to verse 22, and it says that there's a they. It says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Well, who's the they? You go up to verse 21. It says they. That's pointing up to the people who are without excuse for their sin. That's in verse 20. These same people are the ones who, because of their sin and by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth of God in verse 18. And then in verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is upon them. Going all the way back to Genesis 3. This includes every single person who's ever been physically born. Who is them? Them is us. Right now, we're all intellectually nodding. I'm seeing us nod. I'm nodding. We're intellectually nodding and going, yeah, that makes sense. I'm following. That's great. But down deep, we're like, no. We're fighting it. There's a part of us that goes, yeah, I get it out here, but what does it look like in here? You hear me say it, but you're saying, nah, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm not like them. I hear it, but I don't know if I buy it. And the irony is the battle that is waging in your heart and in your mind is the same reality that Paul was addressing with the Romans. We are not any different than the people that he was writing to 2,000 years ago. And he's actually writing into this issue and he's addressing their objections. And his argument to them actually proves that we're just like them and that this is an issue that we have to wrestle with. Let me show you the argument. I'm going to kind of pull back here. We're going to take a really high view just to look at what's happening here. I think it will help us make more sense of what we've just read. Paul's argument, he does the pleasantries. Hey, I want to come see you. I really look forward to being there. I want to go visit Rome. And then he tells the, the people in Rome, and also just by extension, he's telling us that he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. And it was powerful. We talked about that. And then in verse 17, he quotes from the Old Testament and he says, The righteous will live by faith. This is the theme for the entire letter. It's also the chief reason for chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are specifically proving that claim. That's his thesis. The righteous will live by faith. And so then it goes from verse 17 to verse 18. And in verse 18, we read that the wrath of God is on the unrighteous. The wrath of God is on us. And 18 through 32 shows the effects of a sinful heart. It shows us what's happening here when we do sinful things. It shows us that we are sinners. It shows us that that we are among the audience and the guilty of this letter. And then Paul warns them. By the way, that's where we're at in the argument right now. We haven't gone beyond this. Now I'm going to show you where we're going. Paul warns them. He says, you better be real careful how you judge them. Romans 2, 1 through 16, which Pastor Josiah is going to preach on next week, says, as you point to them doing those things, you better be aware you do the same things. You better be real careful. Because how we're judging others, that same judgment and that same wrath applies to us too. Now, before I go any further, does this mean that we don't assess sin? No. That's not what that means at all. Of course not. 
It's not, well, you sin and I sin, so let's just not take sin seriously. Let's just redefine No big deal. Don't judge at all. It's not saying that. It's saying you better be aware of what's really happening in your judgment. Paul just told us, in fact, that the wrath of God is on anybody who sins in this way. So he's not saying just overlook sin and it's not important. He just said it's death. So obviously, we have to take it seriously. But then he warns us that the fingers that are pointing at the thems are the same fingers that are pointing at the us's. Okay, we've got to be aware that we're not really any different and that God shows no partiality. There's no favoritism in this. And then Paul goes on. He understands that there's some intellectual objections in their minds and he addresses them. They have the same kind of objections that we have, the same sort of problems that, that, that they were wrestling with, we're wrestling with. Romans 2, 17 through 24 deals with the Jewish objection. And you might go, well, I'm not Jewish. I'm not thinking like that. But we'll just say the church objection. Okay? For the, for the original audience, they said, but don't we have the law? You say we're like them, but we have the law. We are a special chosen people. We are special. We have a moral code. We have rules to live by. We have a temple. Is this not the objection of some of us? I grew up in the church my entire life. I've read my Bible. I still have the Bible that my pastor put his name in and signed for me and gave me a little encouraging message when I had parents had me up for a baby dedication. I mean, I don't think I do, but... But you might be saying that. Uh, surely I'm different than them. I go to church every week. I'm not like them. That's the argument that he's identifying, and, and honestly, we can kind of relate to that, can't we? I'm not, I'm different. So he goes on to say in Romans 2, 25 through 29, you see the flow here of his argument. He says it's not the one who has the law or, or the church status that's, that's better off. It doesn't help to be good on the outside, but dead on the inside. Right in appearance, like a whitewashed tomb. No. He says it's the one who has a changed heart. He uses the word circumcised heart, which we're going to get to when we get to this passage of Scripture. It's the one who has the law of God and the love of God and the redemption of God written on his or her heart that is saved, not the one who has the law or has been in church services forever. That's how he's dealing with the argument. And now, if you're really thinking through this and you're like them, you're saying, hold on for just a moment. Hold on. Are you telling me that there is no advantage to growing up in the church? Are you telling me it doesn't make any difference if I had Christian parents or not? Are you telling me that my church attendance and what I'm doing here is for nothing? Why do we do all this? There's no benefit to it? And then Paul argues in Romans 3, 1 through 8. He says, absolutely, that's not the case. He says, there is a tremendous advantage. It is wonderful that you were raised by Christian parents or for them that they have the law. It is wonderful that you're here in church. It is wonderful that you have been blessed to have that opportunity to be born to Christian parents, to walk with Jesus you know, since as long as you can remember. That's a tremendous advantage, but having an advantage and being blessed in that is not the same as being saved by it. He's saying, look, those things are great. They are helpful. Let's praise the Lord for them. Let's encourage more of that, but let's remember that only the righteousness of God shown in the person of Jesus Christ saves. So while we're blessed, we're not saved. Wrath is still there. That's his argument, and that's where he's going. 
And then to drive his entire point home, why the gospel is so good, why we need the gospel, he shows us that the entire world, every single person, regardless who does or does not have the law, regardless who is going to church or not going to church, is condemned and under the wrath of God. That's Romans 3, 9 through 20. The whole world, every last one of us. And then here's where it really gets fascinating. Where does his argument resolve? This is what he says in Romans 3, 22. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. What does that sound like? That sounds like Romans 1, 18. Now we're back to the righteous shall live by faith. We have a sandwich here. The righteous shall live by faith. That's one piece of bread. All this meat in the middle, cheese and other things. The righteous shall live by faith. So what's the point of these three chapters? The righteous shall live by faith. It's what the whole book of Romans is about, and it's what we're right in the middle of with the text that I just read. And that sheds some tremendous light on the situation, doesn't it? Who is them? Them is us. We are fallen. We are sinful. And even if we aren't doing some of the things in the list I just read, I mean, I certainly hope none of you are murdering people for sure. But even if you're not doing some of the things, you're doing some of the other things. Something on that list hit every one of us somewhere, didn't it? Somewhere. We are them. Them is us. We need salvation. We are under the wrath of God. And the only answer for that, which is the entire point of why Paul's so excited about the gospel, is that we exchange our sin for Christ's righteousness. So that in that righteousness, we live. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it any more than the people out there we point the fingers at don't deserve it. But we all need it. And it's available to all of us, to all who would believe. Now, I want you to hear this. What I am not saying, what I am not saying is that it's okay to exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. I'm not saying that's okay. That's a sin, and that's wrong. And it's just as much a sin as murder and gossip, being prideful, being unloving. All of those things incur the wrath of God. They're not equal, but the sentence is the same. I'm not saying any of these things are okay. What I am saying is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we all need the salvation of Jesus Christ daily hourly, minute by minute. We all live in it. You live in Christ's righteousness and you have no righteousness of your own. And in that righteousness, we live. I um, have been thinking about a lot lately, thinking about sort of reflecting on my mind and my heart and where I'm at, especially in light of a text like this. And, And I'm reminded of a time Two decades ago, for sure, 20 years ago, 18 years ago, a long time ago, didn't have kids, uh, and the world looked a little different than it does today, and so there was a lot of discussion about, uh, back then they called it Gay Pride Day. It wasn't LGBTQ, it wasn't that, it was just 
There was the Gay Pride Parade, and there was the Pride Festival in downtown Salt Lake. And there was all sorts of argument, debate, discussion. Uh, I'm pretty sure I was working on my undergrad then, and it was just, I thought, I, I want to understand this argument. There also wasn't the social media like there is today, so I hadn't seen a lot of that up front and, and close. And so I, I went to the parade. And I remember the shocking reality that struck me. I was overwhelmed. It was a lot. I remember the feelings that were stirring in my heart. I was remembering the thoughts in my mind. It was, how in the world? I remember the lines in my mind being drawn. I'm not like them. I'm not like that. There's a whole group of those people, and there's a whole thing over here. I remember that. I remember how it stirred in me. Here's what's fascinating by it. It's not that different today. When I see on the news right now, people celebrating their ability to get an abortion and even saying, I want to share my abortion story and I can't wait to have an abortion and I want to be a part of the club of people who've had an abortion. And you know what stirs in my mind? How could they so easily devalue humanity? How could they be that way? How could they? Here's a line. Here's a difference. What about them over there? I can't believe it. Someone needs to teach them a lesson. I'm glad I'm not like them. Stirs in my heart way too easily. It's so easy to get there. I'm reminded too of a parable that Jesus told his disciples, and I'd like to read it for you. If you'd like to read along, it's going to be in Luke chapter 18. It'll be on page 931 in that Pew Bible. I mean, Luke chapter 18, and, and starting in verse 9. <clears throat> Jesus, in his teaching, says he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus continues, verse 14, I tell you, This one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If I were in here worshiping with the faith family, we're standing before God, entering into his throne room, singing songs, hands raised, and and someone was in here doing the things that I struggle with. Wearing a button, having a different view, different lifestyle. But they were in here trying to worship the Lord, pleading before God in community with me. Would I still not see that I was once under the wrath of God too? Would I have compassion? I wouldn't have to say that the sin is correct. 
but would I not love my neighbor? Would I not see that we all need Jesus? Would I forget that Jesus died for me in the moment I was a sinner, not when I had it all together? Am I so boastful that I would miss that Jesus came to seek and save the lost? He was the physician for the sick. It's easy for me to say, well, that's sick. It's hard for me to realize that Jesus comes for the sick. Dare I not forget? May I never forget that I rest in the same undeserved gift of Jesus' righteousness that's offered to others too. Because I make a mockery of the gospel when I, who should know better, I, who knows Jesus, when I, who have a commission from Jesus to make disciples, I make a mockery of this gospel when I have the revelation of truth and when I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me, when I make a claim that I love God and I obey Him, I make a mockery of the gospel when I do all those things. And then I think so highly of myself and so lowly of others. Yet sometimes I still do that. Lord, help me. In Jesus' parable, you know, I'm so thrilled if I can relate to the tax collector, but more often than not, I probably relate to the Pharisee. I think Paul, as he's writing to the Romans, is trying to make that abundantly clear in this three-chapter argument. So how should God's Word inform our thinking here in light of this? And how many of us have seen this text and passage used? Right? It's just to point out the sin, but there must be more. What must we do from a passage like this? I have three observations, at least for myself, <laughs> and maybe they'll benefit you as well. Number one, we must remember. We must remember that we are fallen and sinful too, that we are in need of a Savior. That we do, even as Christians, some of the things in the list. That we still have these problems. That we would humble ourselves and recognize it. We are all under the wrath of God, and the only answer is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we don't deserve it, and I need to remember that, because too often I think, well, I'm great, so of course you'd pick me and save me. And no, I don't deserve it at all. I don't deserve it any more. And the people at the parade or the people at the protest rallies or the people doing this thing or that thing that I don't approve of deserve. Not at all. None of us deserve the gospel. Not one. But we all need Jesus. So do not forget. We have to remember this and stay humble in it. And then in that, we need to worship the Lord. We need to thank Him. We need to praise Him for what He's given us and what He's done for us and recognize the magnitude of how glorious it is. We need to love one another. And we need to seek to dwell in the unity of Jesus Christ because that's what He asks us to do. They will know that you are my followers by how you love one another. We must press into that in the reality of who we were and who He is making us to be. And not get so haughty and boastful and proud about that. Because being proud and boastful is in the list. 
Number two. This one's a little harder. I think it's easy to see how amazing Jesus is in our lives and then praise him for it. That should be, that should be our mode of operation every moment. This one, a little tougher. We cannot fall into the temptation of doing one of two things. Either excusing sin or acting as judge and condemning it outright. The first is the excuse, and it goes something like this. Well, I guess we all sin, uh, so I guess it's okay. Uh, No big deal. Or we say, well, I sin too, so who am I to say anything? That's the trap. That's absolutely the trap. Or we look at that passage in John 8 and say, well, he who is without sin cast the first stone, so therefore I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to think anything. I'm just going to excuse it. But we're called to proclaim the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel means we tell the truth. We share what God says. God says in his word, the Bible, that these things are a sin. We must be okay with that, and we must be able to share the truth. But we also need to go one step further and say, because of sin, we all need the gospel. See, that's the other part. We become this condemning judge. The Bible says you're wrong. Silence. Bible says that's bad. Here's an argument about abortion or LGBTQ or greed or gossip. We're not called just to speak the truth in sin. We're called to speak the truth in love, and that means the gospel must be shared. We all need the gospel, so when you see the sin and when you speak it, you must also speak the hope. That's hard. That's hard. It's easy to say, I'm just not going to say anything because if I say something, then I'm also going to have to share the gospel, but that's what we're called to do. So we don't share to condemn others. We share this. We have an opportunity to say, this is dark, but here's where we find light. Here's where hope is found. So you share Jesus like a dying man talking to dying people. Don't be tempted to run away from the sin because you don't want to share the gospel. And don't be tempted just to let it go. And the next time you see sin on display, which is rather easy in our world, don't turn away in disgust and don't thumb your nose at it. Now, it is disgusting and we shouldn't be involved in it, but don't just simply go, ah, and be done without sharing the gospel because when you do, you're thinking awfully highly of yourself and you're not thinking anything of the other people. They need the gospel. They need the gospel. That's why Jesus called you to be an ambassador, the one who knows the gospel and has the gospel. He called you to be an ambassador to take it into a foreign land. You're a citizen of the kingdom who lives in a foreign land and you're called to take the message of the king into the foreign land so they too can enjoy what you enjoy. So they can know Jesus. So they can worship him. And by the way, not only has he made you his ambassador, he's fully equipped you with his armor and his sword. So pray, pray, pray that God would save sinners and then go share the gospel as much as you possibly can. Finally, number three. If you are in sin, 
You don't even know Jesus. You know him and, and you've been sinning all morning. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Be saved. Oh, but I'm already saved. I got saved back in you know, 1996. No, no, no. You're getting saved in every moment he's sustaining you. Rest in that salvation. Here's the thing. If you have questions, if you profess to be a Christian and you still have struggles, come talk with me. Talk to other people in the room. Talk to your fellowship group leader. Talk to somebody. It's important. If you do not know Jesus, talk to us. I'm standing right out in the lobby out there. Come say, I would love to talk with you more. We don't have to do it out there. We can go to my office or we can do it later. But let's talk. What must I do to live and rest in the righteousness of Jesus? That's the question that needs to be the question of our lives. Every moment of every day. Because he's sustaining us and saving us. Rest in it. Know it. Find your assurance in it. Because it is only by the righteousness of Jesus that we live. Because the righteous live by faith. Would you pray with me? God, the world around us is dark, and we know our hearts would be just as dark, if not darker, without you shining your light, without you giving us a new heart, without you redeeming us, without you doing a mighty work in us. If it were left to us, Lord, we'd be far worse than anything we see in the world. If you completely took the hands off our lives, it would be a complete disaster, and we would deserve every bit of wrath and judgment that you put upon us. And God, the truth is, the world applauding and celebrating their sin and, and, and just wallowing in it, Lord, deserves every bit of wrath and justice you have for them. Us too. But God, we know they also desperately need the saving gospel and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that those of us in here would recognize what you've done and show a tremendous gratitude, but also, Lord, have a heart and a desire and and the mercy and the passion for others to experience that, that we'd be moved and compelled not to get in a fight, but to proclaim truth and hope, not to condemn, but to point dying people to life. God, we are an arrogant people. We think we know best. We think our politicians know best. We think our logical arguments are better than everyone else's, Lord, but we would be just the same without you. So, Lord, thank you that you are conforming our hearts and our minds to your heart and your mind. And, Lord, I beg that you would do it even more, that we would have that Romans 12, 1 and 2 act of worship in conforming ourselves to your ways. Not my way, Lord, but your way. Lord, make it here on earth just like you've made it in heaven. Give us compassion for those who are not like us. God, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I sure hope we see it start even in here, even just with a little bit of grace for a brother or sister and a sin stumble. 
No matter how small, just a, a sharp word here or little thing over there. Let us start there, Lord. And let us also proclaim the gospel. That's where we find the grace. Let us live in it here in this place. And as it goes out from here, Lord, let it be magnified that you would be glorified and the world would be radically changed by your gospel. We would tear down the lines of us and them and redraw them as under the wrath of God needing Jesus or worshiping saved by Jesus. And then we would continue to work night and day in our prayer life and in our actions everywhere we go to see that line advance for your kingdom, the angels celebrating that more and more and more are turning away from sin and turning to you. Let that be the praise of our heart. Lord, let that be the action of what you're doing in this place. And Lord, I pray that one day people will look back at Redeeming Life Church and say they are marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, they stand apart from the world. Yes, they are different. But it's because they realize they were them and they are proclaiming the truth and the hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us rest in your righteousness that we would live in that righteousness. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.